Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode number 70. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy the MEP, please let others know about us. Tell your coworkers, your friends, your family, your loved ones, and share it on social media at Macrofab or follow us on Facebook. And there's an Instagram that's Macrofab Inc. That's right. At some point during the show, we're going to announce a secret code word. Uh, if you email us the code word and your address, we'll send some cool Macrofab swag your way. The email address is podcast at macrofab.com. <laughs> and so um, two weeks ago, I was talking about the compressor IoT device thing. Yep. Um, I finished the hardware and got it ordered. So in about you know two to three weeks, I'll have that guy. Hopefully it all works. You know, it is Rev1. We'll see. <laughs> That's using the uh, Photon, right? Yes, yeah. So all I had to do was just basically make a board. That was, it's a carrier board for it. Yeah. It has a bunch of uh, the sensors I talked about last time and some connectors and good stuff. Cool. Yeah. So two weeks or so. Yeah, and so between now and then, I'm going to start exploring the actual software stuff. So hopefully next week I have um, made some headway on that. Like I've got a server running and actually using the particle api but we'll see cool and then i wrote an article about pcb board outlines and what to watch out for um like how to basically draw a board outline correctly there's actually some little tiny gotchas like what um so usually you have when you draw a line the uh like the pcb manufacturer will actually mill out the board right to the middle of that line with the curve of the bit being outside it doesn't go right to the edge of the line it goes to the middle of the line doesn't that depend on the eda tool though no it does not okay so when you're drawing an outline then do you usually do you use the thinnest line you can uh you can use the thinnest line you can or you can um, just account for it or account for it um i usually just use a 10 mil line knowing that it'll be five mils from what you actually see right to be halfway in the 10? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, on inside edges, because it's a round bit that carves out the board, and so you will have a rounded corner right. on the inside. You won't have a sharp corner. Ed, but you don't necessarily know what your manufacturer, the PCB manufacturer, is going to use, right? Correct. And so usually you have to ask ask the, uh, the board house what are they going to use to route it out so you know what the you know, basically spec this, like if you have a cutout that goes into an enclosure, you have to spec basically your tolerance on that kerf. Yeah, because that seems like there could be a pretty big get you there. If 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 you, you define that radius to be too small, I could see a situation where the manufacturer would just be like, well, we have a bigger bit, whatever, we'll just run it. Yep. And then you end up with something that you think is going to be a square on the inside and ends up just being a semicircle or something. Yeah. So... Cool. Well, it's been a while since we've had, uh, well, not too long, but 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 uh, having one of these articles come out. Yeah, and so I think the only thing is you need to go over it and make sure there's nothing else in there. <laughs> and then... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at and it. And then it will probably go up, what, next week? It's a Board outline, that's kind of interesting because... Do you, you think it's simple. Do you draw your board outline first? No. So you start putting parts down and uh, then do board I, outline? I, what I usually do first is if it's a two-layer board. Um, I'll put the bottom layer as I'll put a copper pour and yeah. make it ground, my ground nets, and then 
put the parts on there and I'll do all the modules design first. So like I have the MCU and I'll do all the bypass caps that are supposed to be near it, the crystal, and then put that off to the side. And then I'll do this ICE needs these pull-ups, blah, blah, blah. Do that part next. And I do all of them in like chunks, basically. And then I kind of arrange them in the board, you know, how I kind of like them to look, I okay. guess. And then pay attention to the, how the rat lines flow so I know how the data is going to be transmitted. And basically try to not use vias as much. Okay, you're trying to avoid them as much as possible. Yeah. Because it breaks so, up the ground plane and return paths and a two-layer board. Well, okay, so so in dip trace, planes don't work as nice as that. Uh, y- you can define just like an area and make it. I guess you could do it the way you're talking about, but most of the time when when I'm defining a plane, it has to have a board outline in order to define that plane because ah. it's based off of the board outline file. So I usually do board outline as soon as possible. Yeah, I always delete the stock because like the moment you make a board in eagle it uh will draw a stock outline and i just delete it oh, okay yeah it works and so yeah because when you draw a polygon plane it is defined by the size that you made that plane sure i got you yeah well so i'm i haven't read your article at all i haven't i mean this is honestly of the first i've heard of it uh in terms of the actual information in there so i'm curious to read it myself just because board outline to me has always just been like draw a circle draw a rectangle you're done you know uh so yeah i'll i'll I'll, i'm I'm interested it also covers like you know it kind of branches off the article that you wrote a long time ago about uh slots yeah for parts because uh, at Macrofab, we kind of like to have that information in the board outline because it's a milling operation. Right, right. Um, so it covers that too a little bit. Right. If a if a if you have a any kind of um, object within the the board outline extents, then the PCB manufacturer will interpret that as a mill. Correct. Uh, it works a lot better than many of the other options that. EDA tools offer, and it's more uniform because uh, all EDA tools have the ability to place that. Do that, yeah. So it makes it easier on us and most PCB manufacturers. Um, but speaking about that, like avoiding vias for data transmission and stuff. Yeah, I really, really the the IMU I'm using for the vibration sensing has the VCCIO pin, basically the pin that powers up probably the the, the tri-state outputs for the device and you want those to be pretty stable so you want to put a you know nice bypass capacitor right next to it mm-hmm. um the problem is to the left and right of that pin is scl and sda for i square c right and so you have these two data pins that you need to keep close together to route close together mm-hmm. and you have a power pin right between them and so you have to spread them apart to put the bypass gap there to make it all nice and you have to via down and go a, a, under the data pin. Yeah, it kind of screws up the, the the nice symmetry. Yeah, that's the only like signal I have on the second layer on that board. Do you usually try to put all your signals on one side? Everything, yeah. And, <laughs> and it ends up just being a game for you, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll post the design stuff up and have a like zoom in part of the only like via. On the whole board, 
<laughs> or via for for signals at least. That via haunts you. Yeah, and it's only like you know, maybe a centimeter long or shorter. So I usually try to uh, keep my designs um, easy to route. So I don't I don't usually adhere to all signals on one layer. Uh, it's more about how can I get it done uh, situation. Like with, see, I'll go back and I'm like, oh, that you know, pin out it, you know, off of that mic controller, how I have it hooked up, it would be really hard to route. And I'll actually go back and switch the signals around to make it flow better. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Same you, thing you with you like connectors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually a really big uh, issue with working on a team with firmware designers and hardware designers. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a wonderful thing for them to work together and decide to switch pins and switch functionality just so that everything works out. Like, it may work out for a hardware designer to throw, you know, eight pins adjacent to each other off to somewhere, but that makes the code terrible because the guy might have to access five different ports yep, exactly. uh, within those eight. So there's a happy medium somewhere in between yep. there. Usually what, we, what I try to do for that kind of stuff is um, define what pins we're going to use for those kind of projects, define what pins you want to use with the firmware team first. Yeah. That way they can start working on the, the low-level code as you're doing the routing, and that's kind of like locked in stone until if you have to change it, then you get them, you know, you have a meeting and then say, hey, I like to change it to make the routing easier. Is this going to affect the code base too much, or is it just like, you know, a pound-defined change? You know, that's why the prop is kind of nice because it's it's any sort of pins, doesn't matter any <laughs> yeah any pin any pin works so it's just the hardware guys like we'll deal with it yeah. <laughs> well it's not completely true because a lot um when you do a define and software on the prop with spin mm -hmm. you can only increment the uh like if you do if you if you're trying to let's say um assign a bunch of pins to one value like bring them all up the high yeah. And so you do like port define, let's well, port define a uh, 14 dot dot 18. Get those pins. Those, those pins that, in between, too, pins. will be brought high. Yeah. So if you split it up and you did like 14, 15, 18, 19, 20, and so you have a gap, mm -hmm. well, now you have to add more code in to, and that actually slows it down. Right. Since spin is interpreted, it's not compiled. Right, it has to do. So yes. It has to do extra. So it'll executions. do. It'll bring those first set of pins up. Right, and then the next clock cycle, the other pins. It won't do both at the same time. Right. Yeah. So it does change it a little bit. That's why it's important to pay attention. Yeah. With your uh, with your firmware guys for sure. Oh yeah. But if you're writing firmware, then you can just screw yourself do I, really yeah, easily. Which yourself which one? Up. Which one do you hate more? Writing code or routing hardware? You know, pick whichever one you hate more and. You can make do that easier. <laughs> is hardware. It's elegant hardware is what I really like when everything looks really nice. Sure. Trace wise. And I'm like, if I don't like that code, I can just collapse it in the IDE tool and I don't have to look at that function. Yeah, you, you kind of write it once and then you're done, <laughs> with, done it. with it. Yeah. Right. So, Steven, yes. synthesizer. We're back to that. We're back to synthesizer, right? Yeah, got some cool updates. Um, so we've been, I've been working pretty steadily on getting incremental updates to the synth, uh, and it's more than just, you know, sitting at my kitchen table and 
you know, soldering crap. Uh, with, you know, we, we've been doing calibrations. I've been getting test gear. I've been doing all kinds of stuff. And, and, and since the synth has so many different modules and aspects to it, each one kind of needs its own fine-tuning. Um, and the last time we, we talked about it on the podcast, we, we played some tones, and it was just sweeping uh, yep. on there. So it wasn't specifically trying to play a, a particular tone or frequency. Um, so in the, in the last two weeks or so, I threw together some MIDI code that actually accepts MIDI codes in and plays a tone. And to, you know, I'm surprised because I'm usually not a very good coder, but my code actually works fairly well. It grabs MIDI codes and spits it out to a frequency, which works out really well. Yeah, we had some. You had some issues with that too. Well, the, right. The code, yeah. So, yeah. So it works in a very traditional sense. Uh, if you if you interpret MIDI code uh, by like its base standard, then my code is awesome at that. If you deviate <laughs> from that at all, then it kind of craps the bed. Uh, so MIDI code. Uh, really, all I all I care about is a note on and a note off command. Uh, there's a lot of other commands that are like glide and velocity and aftertouch and all these other things that can modify crap. And, but my synth only really cares about note on, note off, uh, which is a binary 144 and a binary 128. So I basically Wait, just... Bi- that's hex. I'm sorry. Uh, well, it, oh, it comes in, a, uh, it's it's an 8N1 signal. Okay. And then I try to sniff off a, a, a 144 or a 128 okay. code. Uh and and the thing is, <clears throat> so if I get a 144 code, I know immediately there's going to be two uh, bytes that come after that. The second byte is uh, a 0 to 127 signal that just determines what the note is. And then the next signal is velocity. Effectively, what it means is just how hard you hit the key on a keyboard. Mm-hmm. But my synth doesn't even respond to that, so I just ignore that code. So really, I look for a note on and then what note is turning on. And that works great when I send those uh, key commands from, like, a computer. Uh, yeah. My, my uh, uh, I guess my computer program of choice right now is Reaper because it's so easy to use. And whenever uh, you, you run a MIDI file through that, it just, every time a note shows up, it just sends a 144 and the note. And then when the, it's time for the note to stop, it sends a 128 and that same note. And it works great. I've tried plugging my synth into some keyboards mm-hmm. and they do things a little bit differently because they work in a polyphonic mode, not just one note after another. So it'll send a note on command for, for kind of the first note that you press. But if you're holding that note down and you press other notes, it doesn't think it needs to send another note on command because you're already, because you're, because it's already on. It then just sends two bytes, which is the note and the velocity, for every subsequent press. The same happens for a note off command. So if you're not just playing really staccato notes uh, on a keyboard, my synth doesn't really pick it up well, and it gets confused really quickly. And you figure that out with the serial terminal, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I actually use a they are the soft serial um, library with the Arduino to capture all the MIDI stuff. And then I use the hard serial to uh, actually talk back to the computer. Um, that way I can I can do both at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I figured that out by reading all the bits that were flying in because 
I was initially working on the synth on it with a keyboard, and it was just giving me all kinds of garbage. And uh, and so I just started sniffing the line and watching bits fly uh, until eventually I was just like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know the standard. Because the keyboard isn't following the standard MIDI, uh, well, the MIDI standard yeah. of note on, note off, and that's all. And that's what I was really looking for, and everything I read online that were like MIDI tutorials were like, just look for a note on and a note <laughs> off. It's like, great, this is easy. Not so easy. But uh, but n- now now it's it's sniffing for um, the 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 general note on note off, and I'm I'm really just using my computer at the moment to do things. Yeah. So that was a cool thing. Luckily, that wasn't too much of a headache because it was just watching the numbers fly by, and then figuring out what's going on. Yeah, and you um um you got the uh, you basically wrote it in a big state machine. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's basically yeah, it's a state machine that's like if it's you know, state 144, then go do some more stuff, Yeah. you know, so uh, it's actually not even that big of a state machine. It's probably 30 lines of code total yeah. and uh, including the the right commands because I, I'm i taking in a note. It's a 0 to 127. I then have to convert that to a 16-bit number that represents whatever voltage is going out on my yeah. A to D or D to A. Um, so there's not a lot of magic in the in the code. It's it's all the the whole program's probably a hundred lines or less. Yeah. So we'll, we'll post it in the po- podcast notes. Sure. It'd yeah. actually be really cool to do like the evolution of the code. You know what's funny? I have the evolution of the code because I w- when I was writing it, I didn't delete anything. I just kept commenting crap out and pushing it <laughs> to a different side. So really, it's probably like four hundred lines of code. Three hundred is all comments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, the thing was, I, I kept writing different uh, different MIDI sniffers when uh, the keyboard wasn't working. I just kept, instead of actually watching the, the bytes fly by, I just tried writing other things until eventually Parker was like, why don't you just look on the serial terminal? And see what's spitting out. And it out. took me like five minutes to figure it out. It's like, damn it, Parker. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Um but that actually led to sort of the next issue in line with the synth. Well, you tried calibrating it. Well, yeah. So the VCO it, it, it now least. takes in MIDI code. Well, at, a week ago, it took in MIDI code, uh, but there was it was nowhere near on tune with what the code was. You know, it would say play a G4, and it'd be, you know, 100 hertz off of that uh of that note so it was completely out of tune i'm I'm sitting here like it sounds good (laughs) yeah yeah it seems like no no it was it was terrible (laughs) in fact uh so i have a an audio clip that i recorded before i fixed everything and before it's in tune so uh it's an audio clip that i recorded of three uh, voices from Super Mario Brothers. Yep. Uh, so we'll play that track right now so you can hear the synth just purely accepting MIDI data in, but not tuned at all. So that was that was the... Super Mario Brothers on an untuned synthesizer. Um, so what was the clicking noises? So, yeah, I, I, actually, before we played, I forgot to mention, right now, the synth doesn't have the actual capability to turn off a note. The reason why you you have that is because um, 
you usually rely on an envelope that controls a different portion of the amp to actually physically mute it in oh, between okay. notes. Uh, and I, I sort of have that functioning, but when I recorded it, I just, I, I did a, a kind of a ghetto way of turning off notes. Instead of actually turning a note off, I just forced it to go to the lowest frequency it could play. <laughs> uh, so between every note, you hear 13 hertz, which isn't actually audible it's just clicking so that's what all the buzzy clicky sounds are but in general you can you can hear that yeah. the super mario brothers terribly out of tune on top of that so this was before i actually used the voltage standard that we calibrated with the super keithley dmm, DMM. seven digit yeah so so i wasn't I wasn't, you know, worried about it. It's just I kind of expected it to be out of tune, but I didn't know why. So I hook up the, the, the voltage standard to it, and since I know that voltage standard is bang on now, I can trust it. Before, I didn't really have anything to trust other than, you know, physically uh, inserting uh, code and uh, simulating uh, signals, but that's not good enough. So I, I hooked up my voltage standard, and basically just went in half-volt increments uh, and measured the frequency uh, using a, just basically a little tuner yeah. uh, on the output. And when I did it, I got a horrible, horrible response. response. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. So every note, save one, was out of tune. And some of them were not too bad. Some of them were absolutely terrible. And it was completely nonlinear. Yeah. And it was interesting because one of them, which was 220 hertz, uh, which is two volts, two volts input is 220. Uh, basically, it doubles for every mm -hmm. half volt you put in. So two volts is 220. Uh, two and a half volts would be 440 and, and continue on. 220 was, was bang on. I was like, okay, great. This is awesome. But all the rest are terrible. So what I did was like, I busted out a uh, spreadsheet. I wrote down all the values that I would expect to receive from my um, A to D. Then I wrote down all the values that I was sniffing off of uh, the A to D, and I uh, calculated the difference between the two and then plotted that because I wanted to see what it looked like, the, my error across all the input frequencies, and I got a really curious curve. Hey, you showed that to me on Tuesday, and I'm like, yeah. why does that look familiar? Yeah, so uh, after I figured it out, I texted Parker, and I was like, you have to see this. This is cool, <laughs> uh, just because I'm a nerd like that. And uh, so the curve looks like X cubed. Yep. It actually looks a lot like X cubed, where, you know, for negative numbers or, or numbers on the left side of the graph, it kind of it looks almost like an exponential curve down. And then on the right side of the graph, it looks like a, a, a curve upwards. Yep. And I, I, I stared at it for a while. I was like, I have seen this before. I, I don't know what it is. And, and even Parker was like, I've seen this. And the, the thing that's funny about it is it was a Zener diode. Yeah, it was basically, the, it was basically an IV diagram of a diode. Yeah. <laughs> after I, after I, I saw that... It just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my gosh, I just plotted an IV curve of an exact Zener diode. And I look at my schematic, and I had put a Zener diode right on the input of my A to D, yeah. a 5.1-volt five, 5 Zener diode. And 
I look at it and it's like, why the hell did I do that? That's really stupid. <laughs> but 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 uh, well, I, had rem- a reason. I, I remember back. Okay, so the thing was, my inputs are not protected. Anyone can throw any voltage on on the input, and I remember I. I put that 5.1 volt zener there because I wanted to clamp it such that if anyone put, you know, 30 volts on the input, it'd still stick to 5.1. The only problem is, I, I don't know why it, 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 it zener diodes leak and they're not perfect. They, they, they don't have a curve that's super sharp. And that was causing huge issues with the synth. So as as I was sweeping across all my input voltages, that diode would start to conduct at different places and basically higher frequencies were really really flat but lower frequencies were actually sharp because yeah. of the uh the the reverse leakage on on the zener so it's just like oh, okay great yeah and we act basically you, you plotted the characteristics of the zener diode yeah in the non-linear zone that's right yeah that's right it's <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous so so getting this the, the uh, getting the thing in tune is funny didn't require any like turning of knobs or or anything it just unsolder the zener and then redo it it's in tune <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect so i actually have the plot um of the uh the iv curve which matches up with the data sheet yeah uh and it's like okay great yes thank you i, I that's the zener <laughs> so i pop that off everything works great um and, and like and like the the amperage that because you have like a 1k resistor that's, that's right. in line yeah and like if you calculate what the leakage current is of that it's like it was 160 microamps. Yeah. And the 160 microamps was enough to make me way out of tune. Yeah. But it was just enough. And, you know, across that 1K, it was just enough voltage drop. And you could just actually, you could ca- calculate in what your voltage drop was. That's right. At, with that 1K resistor. Right, right. Yeah. So um, I re-recorded uh, Mario Brothers. Um, still has all the clicking on it, so. But, but you'll know what it is this time. Uh, so here is the Super Mario Brothers more in tune. So there we go. Mario Brothers in tune. And it was all because I was an idiot and I put a zener on the input of my A to D. Oh, you didn't know that. You were thinking that it was an ideal diode. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and the thing is, <laughs> I still would like to put a clamping circuit there. But but what I should do is something that actually senses the voltage there and then um, like shorts a MOSFET. Do an or, active style. Yeah, yeah. Have a have a comparator such that it if it goes over five volts, then it just shorts the output to ground. 
or you know you could get even fancier and do like active uh such that it, it's in a feedback loop and it would hold it down all of that adds you know impedance especially it adds capacitance to it so it kind of gets a little bit funky right now i'm the only one who's going to be playing this so i just know not to put five more than five volts on my input so i'm not too worried about it at the moment yeah, you could um, you could try a TVS. It'll still leak a little bit, though. It'll leak, yeah. Um, and and the, the yeah the, the problem is, well, okay. So this this was a good a good lesson, I guess. Uh, Zeners are at least the one that I chose is not sharp at all. It it conducts almost all the time, uh, and 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 it was funny because uh, the uh, the one well, note that conducting, wasn't. It's- barely conducting well but but in a in a, really, in a, in a sensitive uh circuit like i've got that was way more than oh, enough true, to true, kill true. it but in a in a, a most of those like 5.1 volt zeners they're used in digital circuits where a couple microamps right. isn't going to affect or, your... or they're used in a power supply oh uh, yeah, where too, yeah. you just you're you beat the hell out of them anyway and you don't really care it's not really sensitive so yeah it was it was just not the right choice for um clamping signals i probably should have chose something else but but it's cool so everything is in tune now um and uh, and so i can i can move forward so i've got full midi capability i've got all my waveforms in fact the animator waveform that wasn't uh, functional last time i got that functional so what was wrong with that uh a wire broke <laughs> <laughs> we we should post a picture of the the synth right now it's in ultimate prototype mode where it's just yeah. absolute disgusting it's a rat ratness nest. <laughs> so uh yeah i need to i need to one of the next things is going to be a little bit of a step backwards, and that's just cleaning up all my wiring. Because yeah. I've just been slapping things together just for testing purposes. Now I want to make it a little bit more fixed. So, so next week, what are you going to have done on it? Okay, so... It's going to be nicer. It'll be nicer, yeah. Um, I'll probably have a better faceplate that's not made of an old FR4 Piece PCB. Of, yeah. Uh, but the, um, the envelope... Um, the envelope actually already functions. So that already works... Hundred uh, percent, but I'm going to be using the envelope to control other parts. So I hope to have the um, voltage-controlled amplifier working, such that the envelope will control that. Uh, and I also hope to have glide functionality, which basically uh, slows down the transition between two notes. So instead of you know do do kind of thing, it mm-hmm. it'll do something oh, like that. Okay. So and th- and then you have variable amounts of slide and glide between notes. So that's called Glide, huh? Or Portamento. I like Glide. Yeah, Glide's better. Because I can, I can pronounce that one. So, yeah, that's, that's what I've been up to. Um, and we were thinking about doing an article series, right, for the synth? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, actually, yeah, if, if, if people are interested, please write in, podcast at macfab.com. If you'd like to hear about that, I, you know, I'd love to see if, if people are interested. But I'm down for writing some, some articles about uh, some of the modules on, on there and kind of the theory of operation. And yeah, just behind that. breaking down, like do an overview article of the synth mm-hmm. with all the block diagrams and then go into each block diagram and explain this is the, how how does this work? Yeah, yeah, that'd be a ton of fun. Yeah. I'd actually have to get it working. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can write the overview one before it's working. Yeah. Until, you know, it stops working. We I think we... You posted a picture of my block diagram, right? The yeah. W- yeah. Well, just a picture of the 
sheet of paper. Yeah, well, with the uh, picture of the sheet of paper with my coffee stains and all my notes. And yeah. I think there's even, like, phone numbers to someone I was calling oh, at work. and stuff. whoops. I don't know. I don't remember. I looked at it the other day. I was like, there's all kinds of crap on that page. <laughs> so cool. Okay, so we'll have we have a pow this week, right? A, uh, a pick, pick of, of the week, week. Um, or part of the week, or project. This is actually a project of the week. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's. I think last week we we're talking with and Xor about running Doom on stuff. That's right. Yeah. And we saw this. It's the doomed thermostat. <laughs> um, it's a Honeywell Prestige thermostat. Yep. That somebody hacked into and yeah. installed Doom. And yeah, it's running Doom. <laughs> It's great. It's 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 sort of like a a more boxy industrial looking nest. Yep. That has doom on the front panel, and it's just I love it because it. It's a thermostat. Yeah, like why? <laughs> but yes, it's so amazing. <laughs> and uh, and and one of the best parts is it's controlled by a Nest controller. Uh, they actually hacked in an NES controller to play it, which is freaking cool as hell. So well, I want. So I guess there's they. Uh, I guess I got to look at the article, but did they, to get the controller to work, did they just like solder onto non-used GPIO, the MCU? You know, I bet you they used a USB uh, NES controller and just jacked that in. Probably. Yeah, that's, that probably, although it would be more impressive if they <laughs> wrote their it own driver wrote their it? own, yeah, NES driver. So does it still run as a thermostat, like does it does still do the thermostat functionality? You know how great it would be? Oh, my gosh. If you had the Doom guy's face on it, and he was constantly, like, looking around, and if it got really hot, he just made that noise where he's like, ah, uh, ah, uh, you know, when he gets <laughs> shot in the game and his, his face gets all bloody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Um, but one of my favorite comments, because uh, I think this was on Hackaday that we found it, um, is basically this is getting to be, like, the elite hacker version of Blinky. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Basically getting Doom to run on X hardware. So so your first project is Hello Doom? Hello Doom. That's <laughs> going to be the code word. Oh, Hello Doom. Hello Doom. Write that in. Podcast at macrofab.com. For a swag. For a swag. A swag. <laughs> okay, the RFO, Rapid Fire Opinions. Yeah. Um, the first one is going to be the TI Reference Design. T-I-D-A-01243. Okay. And I think I found that on EE Web. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, then Hackaday, Procedurally Generating Random Medieval Cities. That this is one cool. that Stephen found on Hackaday. Yep. Um, and then the Raspberry Pi named a finalist for National Engineering Award by Electronics Weekly. So we'll start with the first one. Um, so the TI reference design, T-I-D-A-01243. Oof. I wonder if there's a 01234. I bet you there is. Yeah, there, I, I'm going to look that up afterwards. Um, so this is a reference design. We, we used to talk a lot about Type-C USB when it was the new thing. It still kind of is. And you're starting to see it a lot more in devices like it's on the Nintendo Switch, it's on all new laptops, et cetera, et cetera. It's in your phones, um, eventually being your brain. <laughs> um, so this is a reference design for USB Type-C for um, like a dock system. Mm -hmm. So actually kind of like what's in the Nintendo Switch dock. Yeah. Because it does power delivery. It does uh, video support and all that stuff. By the way, super, super thumbs up on Nintendo for doing uh, Type-C. 
But the problem is they put the connector at the bottom of the 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 uh they the, put the, the actual switch. Yeah, on the actual switch they put it on the bottom and so if you're holding it and the cable's just sitting out the bottom. So you can't like rest it on like a surface with the kickstand. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that my, it's like that Apple mouse that they put the charger on the bottom of it. And so the mouse had to be on its side with the USB plug plugged into it. Oh, so yeah. So you yeah. can't use the mouse you can't while, use it charging. while charging. Yeah. It's like that was a smooth move. But but the, but, move. but the fact that Nintendo's got away from propri- proprietary connectors and are doing Type C, that's way thumbs up in my mind. Yeah. Especially cuz it's it's HDMI, USB and USB C for yep. the Switch. So um and so it's got a bunch of like fancy like I think it does like Four, it's got basically a four-channel USB-C um, the reference hub design. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, but, and it also does 20-volt, 3-amp. So it does the, do the 20 volts, Yeah, but it doesn't do the 5-amp. It only does 3-amp. Have you seen a design that does 5-amp yet? Not yet. I want to find one. I think TI's got a reference design. I got to dig it up. But I haven't found one yet. Okay, but 60 watts over Type-C is still... Pretty killer. It's getting there. Is that, wait, is that four channels at 60 watts? No, no, it's just the one cable. Oh, okay. okay. The four channel is being used as like a dock, and so you can plug multiple devices into it. Okay. Like a normal USB hub. Yeah. Well, that's pretty awesome. All right. This one is yours. Yeah. So, uh, found an article on Hackaday for procedurally generating random medieval cities. Now, this one is kind of uh, a little bit off what we normally talk about. Uh, but it was, it was kind of funny because Parker and I, uh, we've been generally trying to set up a Dungeons & Dragons campaign uh, through which I was going to, or am going to, Dungeon Master at some point in time. Uh, and we were going to play with a couple people from Macrofab and maybe even Josh. Josh kind of talked about it the other week, playing some D&D. And, and this randomly popped up. Uh, so this guy has created a... a online software that basically you click the size of a city that you want and it makes a medieval city for you and it'll lo- it'll like label like what the buildings are yeah and that kind of stuff so like you know this is where the crafting's at or or the market and yeah this is the, the, here's the turrets and here's the castle and things yeah. like that and it's and it's it's really great if you're dungeon mastering because you don't have to draw that all out yourself you just click this city and then show it to everyone and be like this is where you're at the only thing i think that could be better is if when you clicked on a building it like zoomed into the building and it had stuff inside the buildings that would be incredible it'd be gnarly and then if it was like it worked on like an ipad or something like a big screen tablet so a you surface could, a surface whatever <laughs> yeah anything. and then uh, and that way you can have you know all you have you can actually just randomly generate a city on the go and that's like, oh, you come across, you know, Camelot 3. Camelot. <laughs> new Camelot. Yeah, new Camelot. <laughs> Neo Camelot. Neo Camelot. It would be really cool if the Dungeon Master could randomly add things. So if somebody's, you know, said they go to a house and they click on the house, it would zoom into the house. And then me as the Dungeon Master, I could say there's, you know, I tell the program there's a treasure chest and there's three guys in there. You know, something like if it could uh-huh. randomly add that in there, too, that would be really cool. But regardless, for a start on this kind of thing, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's the interface is really cool. It looks like an old map. Yeah. It's got the right color scheme. Really cool. Yeah. And we were looking into uh, 3D printing uh, figurines 
Yeah. So I know I've kind of crapped on 3D printing in the past, but in terms of getting a whole bunch of figurines to play with. And you know what the best thing be about perfect. this is you really hated 3D printers because they just print plastic crap. I think that's the exact quote. We're going to be printing <laughs> plastic crap. I didn't really hate it, but now that I want some plastic crap, they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Par- Parker was actually saying earlier today, he's like, why don't we just let the 3D printer run all day, every day while we're at the fab the, the and just with, crap out The problem with my plastic. 3D printer is it doesn't really have a super high resolution for doing the small guys. Yeah. Can we just, like, zoom? what if we just up? scaled everything up? And so, like, yeah. even, like, the small figurines that people use that are, like, an inch tall, they're, like, three inches tall. That would be cool. And just make everything. We just have to have, like, a big table. <laughs> just play yeah. on the floor. Yeah, why not? That'd be great. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, 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 have to, we'll have to give it a shot. It, 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 unless somebody wants to give us a really nice 3D printer, and then we can print D&D figurines. That'd be awesome. Wink, wink. Hint, yeah. hint. Maybe no. Or give it something <laughs> as a uh, sample. Ooh, Ooh yeah, yeah. Resin printer, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're that popular enough. No, to no. Pull no. that kind of weight. No, we are nowhere near that popular. <laughs> okay. and, and we just talked about D and D, so we're a lot less popular <laughs> now. <laughs> Viewership plummets. <laughs> <Just> plummets. <laughs> um, next topic. Yeah, next topic. Uh, Raspberry Pi named a finalist for National Engineering Award. By Electronics Weekly. And so this, the Raspberry Pi, no, I hope everyone that's listening to this podcast knows what the Raspberry Pi is. I, I'm, Do I'm, you know what the Raspberry Pi Can you explain what the Raspberry Pi is? Ooh, credit card size computer. There you go. Um, and so it was named the finalist for the apparently coveted, I did not know this, <laughs> uh, Mac Robert Award. Well, now you can covet it. Yeah, now I can covet <laughs> it. <laughs> um. And it's an innovative prize award awarded each year by the Royal Academy of Engineering. And I'm going to guess Royal Academy. That's got to be in England or Europe or something. Well, I mean, this is being held in London, so you got it right. I got it right. Congratulations. Um, And the fact that you told me earlier is that the Raspberry Pi owns 1% of the global PC market share. That was the biggest thing in this article. I mean, don't get me wrong. uh, The Raspberry Pi winning or being a finalist in this uh, competition or award, whatever it is, uh, that's that's super cool. But the fact that the the, the Raspberry Pi constitutes one percent of the world's computing, that's pretty cool. Well, you know, PC, what's what's the thing? PC gaming's dying every year. Well, yo, well yeah, I, yeah, I hear that every year. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not. Sorry, that's how they got one percent market share. Yeah. Well, actually, one <laughs> the funny thing is this article calls out Raspberry Pis. One of their main functions is video gaming. Uh, emulating, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't know of any games that are actually developed for Raspberry Pi. Uh, I think it, it ha- comes with two or three, I believe. But that's part of Raspbian. Uh, so, Pytrus. I mean, Pytrus. I think it's, I think it's <laughs> one of those things like the original, the like the first version of Raspbian... When everyone was like, what's a Raspberry Pi? They just threw some games on there so that people could do something the first so time says, you turn it on. So instead of Ski Free, Ski Pi? Ski Pi. Yeah, pie Free. Pie Free, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, good on them. That's that's super cool. I hope they, I really hope they get it. They they they, they are up against some stiff competition, though. The, it's, the other competition, if I remember right, they're doing things that are, uh, like, inherently helpful 
socially in a way. So uh, they kind of have that going for them. Whereas the Raspberry Pi is just a giant monolith of computing. Well, I mean, it does did introduce a whole bunch of people to programming and hardware and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that was kind of what the Raspberry Pi was built off of was basically getting hardware in hands of everyone so they can learn programming. You know, do you, okay, do you know of any hardware issues with the Raspberry Pi? I know of only one, and that was the, 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 the flip chip that could reset if you take a picture of it. Yeah, with we actually Xenon talked about bulb. that. Yeah. That was the Raspberry Pi 2? Yep, that was the 2. And the Raspberry Pi 1 had really bad issues with the USB power. Okay, yeah. Yeah, basically, they because you would power it with USB, and then um, and then it ran through, a I think, a diode to prevent backfeeding. Yep. And then a fuse, polyfuse, mm-hmm. and then it would go through another polyfuse to go out to the USB hub. I think that's how it worked. And then basically, after all that, it would be below, like, a lot of times if your power supply was, like, barely above 4.5 volts what no 4.75 volts which is like the minimal is it is it a quarter of volt or yes yeah okay okay. quarter volt plus minus that's a huge you can have 0.5 volt ripple and be in spec on usb that's brutal yeah that's a big ripple (laughs) yeah i guess that still counts for type c also yes because half a volt, if you're talking about five amps and half a volt. Well, I don't know about the power delivery standard. I just know about. Oh, okay. Just uh, general. Yeah. Okay. okay. General five volt is plus minus 0.25. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. So um, the, the thing is, so I have uh, Raspberry Pi 3s out yep. on our manufacturing floor right now that are actually um, – running our scanners yep so on our conveyor line as a board goes by our scanners will hit the barcodes and uh, it talks to raspberry Pis, and i set them all up for power over ethernet so they're all powered from a single hub and when i was looking it up the raspberry Pis, maybe i got the wrong information because i i i swear it said that usb ports could only source like 150 milliamps and our scanners are rated at 470 milliamps and I just was like, well, I'll give it a shot. And I plugged it in. It works. So I think that's the older versions. Okay. Okay. I thought I was looking up Raspberry Pi 3. But I didn't have to modify the Pis, and they're just working. You know what? I actually have a, a 2, is it Raspberry Type 2B Plus? Wh- whatever. The, 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 the plus model of the second one. And it also is running a almost okay. half an amp uh, scanner on it. So it's it's weird. But... Hey, if it works, it works, right? Cool. Yep. Neat. Neat. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and so that was episode 70 of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Neat.